He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, November 4, 2023. It's episode 180 with Cliff May. Clifford May and I met when he was in Denver as a journalist. He'd been at the New York Times. Then he became a bigwig at the Rocky Mountain News. He filled in for Mike Rosen superbly on KOA doing some talk radio. Then he went back east and he became a head of a great and powerful organization called the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. I've had him on many times in my broadcasting career. Mark Dubowitz, too. He kind of monitors Iran. Mark and Cliff, they monitor the world. But holy cow, the world is on fire. I cannot think of a better guest with moral clarity, nonpartisan Cliff May. And then our troubadour, our birthday boy, he is turning 70. He said it last week, and his daughters are in. And we have a magnificent song befitting our desire for peace in the world, in the Middle East, when the lion lays down with the lamb. It's fantastic. Episode 180, as Dave Gunders and I discuss, it's meaningful. It's the word chai, all right, to life. We need to bring light to the world, and that's what we try to do. I like humor. Keith Oberman makes me laugh almost every night. He puts out his show in the mornings, but here in Colorado, you can get it about 10 p.m., and I like to listen to hear his top bad three list. What does he call them? Yeah, the worst people in the world. And generally, I agree, not always, but he makes fun of some people who I think deserve mockery like Mark Levin. Mark Levin said some terrible things this week about Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer at CNN. He is a Trump enforcer. That is Mark Levin, a lawyer, a radio guy, and I followed him, his career, his books. I was on radio stations that glamorized and platformed him. I've never met him in person, but I don't like what he's doing. Really don't like it. He sold out to MAGA in a variety of ways, and I approve of Oberman ripping the hell out of him for castigating Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer and calling Jake Tapper a self-hating Jew or self-loathing, accusing those guys of being hateful toward who? Toward Donald Trump? A lot of smart people don't like the destruction of our democracy. We don't like it. Anyway, Keith Oberman goes after Mark Levin, and he does three things that I think are really way wrong. First, you got to call people by their proper name, and Mark Levin pronounces it that way. And if you're a Levin or a Levine or a Levine, I know a lot of these guys. And, you know, if you're a Jew, those are, I'm not an expert, but they're the Levites, all right? They have special obligations in Orthodox synagogues. Anyway. I'm going to pronounce your name the way you want to pronounce, like Kamala Harris. I've learned how to say Kamala, but a lot of people who want to insult her won't give her that courtesy. And I don't like it. I don't like it when somebody on the left, like Oberman, mispronounces it as Levin. When Mark Levin is a major Trump enforcer, he might be attorney general, who knows, in a coming administration. And just pronounce his name right, and then we can talk shit about him. And then you don't need to call him a creature. I mean, they dehumanize him. He is Jewish. I don't like what he says. I think it's terrible. I think he's sold out to Megan. But he is a Jew, just like Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer and me. And I don't know, John Stewart, who had much more Jewish last name back in the day. What was it, Leibowitz? But... That's okay, but everybody knows he's a Jew in part 
by the way he looks, an Ashkenazi look, and the way he sounds. Because, I don't know, Seinfeld, Woody Allen, whatever, Howard Cosell, I've been told that Jewish guys have a distinct way of talking and might be a little nasally, reedy. It's hard to describe for some people, but Mark Levin is particularly afflicted. He also has asthma. Would you make fun of a guy for having asthma? I wouldn't, even if he's my enemy. And then when it comes to voices, it's an immutable characteristic, like, I don't know, eye color, whether you're going to be bald or not, whether you're right-handed, left-handed. Did anybody pick their voice? You can do certain things, like I like to run you know, water through my nose when I'm broadcasting or going to court. And I've had surgeries and this and that. But it's me. And when I talk even to this day in a Colorado department store, sometimes even in Vegas or who knows where, people recognize me by my voice, which is kind of cool. And certain people have grown a fondness to it, like my wife. It's a taste you can't acquire, or so I'm told. I'm still waiting for that day. I think it's great when I speed myself up to about 1.8. Perfect. Matches my brain, and I re-listen to the show, and I think how smart I am. I've got a few problems here, and one of them is, like a lot of broadcasters, I have a healthy ego. And maybe I love myself a little too much. Maybe like a Jake Tapper, who's all over everything, goes on Stephen Colbert and all my favorite late-night shows, and he's great, and he's a father, and he's a Jew, a proud Jew, a proud American Jew, and I'm going to stand up for Jake Tapper. And it seems to me that when Levin says that he's a self-loathing person, that means Levin is really the self-loather. If he calls those guys on CNN hateful, it's Levin who's hateful. I follow him on Twitter, and it's sickening. Him and Matt Schlapp, that disgraced guy, Bob Beaupre, pulled his pants down metaphorically. You can read all about it. And I'm going to try to get Bob on. I'm going to try to get Keith Oberman on. But I am going to call him out for picking on Levin in a shitty way. In my opinion, maybe you think it's funny. He has this background organ music, and this is just constructive criticism. If you're in court, you can't call somebody a creature or an animal. Donald Trump does that sort of shit. He makes fun of people for immutable characteristics like skin color or ethnicity. And when it comes to religion, the reality is I'm a Jew because my parents were Jewish. We're an ethnicity, we're a race, we're a religion. And apparently, we really bother a lot of people. And we got it coming from all sides. This podcast, episode 180, I think could be one of my best, not because of me, but because of Cliff May, who you will hear after this Oberman clip. And then, of course, our birthday boy, Dave Gunders, in a song dedicated to Sarah and Rachel, When the Lion Lays Down with the Lamb. Perfect. Tell a friend, share, subscribe, enjoy. Here's Keith Oberman ripping the guy Sean Hannity and the late Rush Limbaugh used to call the great one, Mark Levin. Then there's Mark Levin of Fox, whose voice is so bad, he sounds like somebody scraping aluminum siding with barbecue tongs. His voice is so bad he will never get a weeknight show on Fox, but he is on on the weekends. And he was nice enough recently to call Jake Tapper of CNN a, quote, self-hating Jew. And now he says Wolf Blitzer's, quote, parents weren't victims in one way or another of the Holocaust. And you can see where this guy is going. Wolf Blitzer's parents fled Poland after all four of his grandparents were killed during the Holocaust, murdered. His maternal grandparents were murdered at Auschwitz. This is not enough for Levin. And you could call Levin self-hating, but he doesn't have time for that. He's too busy hating everybody else. A truly sick and disgusting creature.
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. This is a, another big honor to talk to a big shot. Cliff May and I go way back in Colorado, back to when we were spring chickens. How do you remember it, Cliff? I'm, I'm nostalgic for Colorado in, in many ways. I have great affection for it. You know, I got uh, my kids. Uh, my kids were both born there. I had some wonderful years. Tell everybody about your background, where you grew up and how you came to be uh, such an important person at the foundation for the defense of democracies? Well, you know, uh, I, I grew up in, in New York. I, uh, be I wanted to be a journalist. I became a reporter. I got to the New York Times. I became a foreign correspondent for a number of years. Um, after that, I did, I did some work in politics, not as a candidate, but, but, but behind the scenes. And then 9-11 happened, and that changed everything for me for a lot of reasons, some of which we can, I'm happy to talk about. Um, but I ended up just, I ended up founding an organization that was to look at terrorism and, and eventually national security and nothing else, a think tank just on that. In other words, it's not a department store. We don't do healthcare. We don't do urban planning. We don't do taxation, but we only do national security and, our, and the national security of the United States and other free nations, other democratic societies has been very much under attack. 9-11 should have been a wake-up call. It was in some ways, but I think our situation today is, is of anything worse uh, than it was then. Because back then, yes, we thought we had Al-Qaeda, but we thought, okay, Russia is going to be a free and democratic country over time. China is going to be our friend. They're making a lot of money thanks to us. It's all going well. Well, now what we see is we're in, what I think is, I'm not alone in this, Cold War II, it's led by China, Junior partner is Putin. Another junior partner is the supreme leader of, of the Islamic Republic of Iran, Ali Khamenei. And even more junior partners include North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia, and an increasing number of, of, of countries in Africa, where I spent some time as a, as a New York Times foreign correspondent. Right. And you guys have been warning about this. And we kind of took our eye off the ball. Politically, you guys... I believe we're nonpartisan, and that's we're nonpartisan. Yes. Absolutely, we're nonpartisan. We try, we give advice to everybody. We do research. We try to we come up with policy options. We try to show why policy option A is pretty is the best. Policy option B is not so bad. Policy option C is going to get you in trouble. And uh, we, we anyhow we do a lot of that, and we do it for people on both sides of the aisle and for agencies. And we are out in the public as much as we can, also trying to educate and, and make and make the case for American national security and for that of America's allies. Right. Others of us can be more political, but I respect your role. And I felt my role in the media at the time I had a radio show and uh, 
I led a rally against the Iran nuke deal on the west steps of the Colorado Capitol. Quite right. And uh, you guys have identified that threat for a long time. You just talked about it again. That's why, you know, your organization's invaluable, but we took our eye off the ball because we're squabbling about politics. Am I right? Well, I think that that is right. I think, look, it's hard to keep people's eye on national security. I understand they're thinking about going to the grocery store and how much a bottle of milk now costs. And they're, they're worried about a lot of things much more locally. And it's hard for them to see why national security is a threat, except when you have something like the attacks of 9-11. That absolutely does. That, that brings it home for a while. But then it, it tends to fade for a lot of people. But the situ- But as I say, we, we follow these situations very closely, a program that focuses on Russia and Ukraine, one that focuses on China. Cybersecurity is a huge problem. We have a center on cybersecurity. We, do, we work a lot with the Pentagon. We have a military center. By the way, it's www.fdd.org, Foundation for Defense of Democracy, www.fdd.org, because there's lots and lots and lots of information, articles, studies, research, reports, that people can get in this. There's, there's, we, we love it if you stay set. people want to send in a donation, but they don't need to. All right. So I didn't like the Iran nuke deal. I didn't think the Islamic Republic of Iran could be trusted. You guys sort of felt the same way. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but once it got consummated and we delivered all that money to them, why not get the benefits of the deal? I didn't understand why we would withdraw. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, very. it's very simple. There was no way in which the Islamic Republic of Iran was abiding by the deal. And the deal, anyhow, allowed this re- this regime, this oppressive regime in Iran, to continue to go ahead with its nuclear weapons program that it always has denied having. Right. There was no real halt to it. So it, it, there was, it was nothing to, to stop it. And they were getting lots of money, billions of dollars, um, and that they could use and did use to support Hezbollah, the foreign legion right. based in Lebanon, to support Hamas, mm-hmm. to support Islamic Jihad, to support the Houthi rebels, to support Assad as he took back uh, Syria um, with with the, with the help of the Islamic Republic of Iran and Russia's help too. I should I, sh- I should add, all this was going on with that money. So we certainly pressed for, and the and the Obama, Obama the uh, Trump administration decided, okay, we should put serious financial pressure on this regime. One, we don't want to give them money to do these terrible things. Two, we don't, they haven't stopped their nuclear weapons development program because of this. So that he, and then, the, the, but the Biden administration decided to go back to the Obama policy. No, no, right, I agree. But, but my point is once the bad deal was entered and we gave away the cash, I mean, the damage was done. So why not no, get the damage? The- the damage continues to be done every day because new cash keeps coming in. Right, right, right. But I'm talking, I'm going back to uh, the yeah, Trump administration yeah. that it took us out of the deals. And then the Biden's part. Yeah, I don't like the Dems trusting Iran. And they've made mistakes. And we're not here to be partisan. But I do wonder if that speech I attended in Washington, courtesy of Jared Polis, Heck, you're a D.C. guy. That was a tough ticket to get into that speech he gave, even though Joe Biden boycotted the speech. Remember when Boehner invited him to the joint session? Yeah. I happened to be in town for APAC, and I was at that speech, and I'm wondering if that was, I thought it was a great moment in world history, but has that kind of led us to to where we are now, the divisiveness that we saw that day? Well, the real problem is not understanding what the regime in Iran stands for, what the Islamic Revolution was about in 1979. I have a particular perspective on it because in 1979, I covered the Islamic Revolution. I was pretty young. I was pretty wet behind the years. But I think I did understand better than a lot of my colleagues that this was very explicitly a revolution that had as its goal, as stated, Death to Israel, death to America. Now, that was that wasn't hyperbole. It didn't mean oh, we don't we don't like them. We wish they changed their policies. It didn't mean let's see if we can get some diplomatic win-win situation. They meant what they said. This revolution is about a couple of things. It's about creating a new Islamic empire that we haven't had since the fall of the Ottoman Empire in the world. This one would be 
based in Iran, but it would be a new Islamic empire. And they've, they've made significant success in that. Lebanon is essentially a colony. Syria is pretty much a colony. Yemen may be other places, but they're also devoted to death to Israel. The same way, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna be plain about this, the same way that Hitler was absolutely dedicated to exterminating the Jews of Europe. I, I have a column in the, it's, it's in the print edition of the uh, Washington Times today, cover the commentary section, and it, it points out there's a book by Lucy Davidovitz. Uh, she wrote it in 75, it's called The War Against the Jews. And what she said was that Hitler was fighting not just a war against the allies, but a war against the Jews. And the war against the Jews actually took precedence in that he would take trains that could be using to send troops to win battles, instead to take Jews to concentration camps, and that Jews who could be slave labor for him and he needed labor, he was burning in ovens instead. And, not, and I think similarly, the Islamic Republic of Iran is determined to exterminate all the Jews it can from Israel. Hamas is very explicit about that. It's in the charter. We've had a Hamas leader just say in Lebanese TV this week, we're gonna do what we did on 10-7, mass murder, rape, cutting the heads off. We're gonna do that as many times as we can until eventually there is no Israel and by extension, no Israelis. Sure, some can get in boats and try to get away. Some, can, some will escape, but what they want is to exterminate it. And by the way, this is not something they can will compromise on, Hamas will not, because it's theological to them. What do I mean by that? If you read the Hamas charter, it's not that long, it's online, it's easy to find. Here's what, it, here's what it, it's very clear that they believe that any land ever in all of history conquered by, by Muslim armies is by definition an endowment, a waqf, an endowment from Allah to the Muslims, which can never be surrendered, which must be reclaimed. And any infidels who are on that land and think they can rule themselves, they must be killed. And there can be no negotiation with Israel. There is only one solution to Israel. They say what it is in the charter, it is jihad. And by jihad, they mean what you saw on 10-7. On so I wanna make this point very clearly. Anybody who says, well, see, I'm pro-Palestinian, therefore I'm pro-Hamas, I say, therefore, you're not just pro-terrorist, but you're pro-genocide. That's what you are. Let's be very clear about that. Beautifully said. And in that original Hamas charter, when it says, there's a Jew behind a rock, go kill him, where do they get that from? Well, they get it from either the, the, the Quran or the Hadith, which are sayings attributed to, to, Mo, to Mohammed. Um, it's, it's complicated because there's a lot of different hadith, you know, there's some that are ex accepted by certain groups of, 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 of Islamic scholars, some that are not. not by, listen, by no means do, do all Muslims believe what's in the Hamas charter. I would say most don't. We have, I don't know, a dozen Muslims working here at FDD. They don't believe in any of that. But th this is their, this, their, the view of Al-Qaeda, the view of ISIS, the view of Hamas, the view of the Islamic Republic of Iran, um, they've made it very clear. We can pretend that all they want is a win-win solution. We can pretend that all they want is a two-state solution. We can pretend that there have grievances we just need to address, but we're, but we're being willfully blind when we say these. Right, and their grievances and just as you articulated that there can't be any Jews in their neighborhood they say that Jews are fundamentally inferior, and uh, it's spelled out in the Hamas Charter. They cite the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which comes out of Russia, and Hamas just visited Russia. What a blood-curdling visit that was. And to me, they're worse than the Nazis because they want not to hide what they're doing to the Jews. They yell it out, and they say that the Jews have bad blood and need to be exterminated. And it's in our blood that makes us want to do it. It's the most bigoted thing in the world. You would think that the West would say, come on, this is worse than the Klan ever was, right? Yes, this, this is the 21st century expression of, of what in, the, in, in an earlier century or two, beginning in the 90s, was called anti-Semitism, right? Where did the word anti-Semitism come from? It came from a German in the 19th century, Wilhelm Marr. He invented the term. He was trying to give a scientific um, tone to his hatred of Jews. That's, that, 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 that's how he came up with, with the term. But of course, the Jew hatred has been around 
for millennia. They were based on religion, based on race, because they're communists, because they're capitalists, whatever reason. But mostly right now in the Middle East, this whole, the, the idea is that the, the Jews may not have self-determination in even a portion of their ancient homeland, which groups like Hamas deny has ever been their homeland. The idea that the Judean hills, the Judean mountains, that has nothing to do with the Jews. The Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem? No, no, Jews didn't live there until the Europeans came down. Actually, none of that, of course, is is true. The Jews are the indigenous people, uh, and indigenous people, as are Arabs, as are Turks, as are Kurds, um, as are Druze. They're an indigenous people of the Middle East who, after, after millennia, of Zion, another name for Jerusalem and the surroundings, after a millennia of Zion being under foreign imperialist rule, the Romans, the Byzantines, the the Turks, the Ottomans for hundreds of years, the British for a short while, the Jews decided in that community, the Palestinian Jews, to said, we're gonna declare our independence. By the way, in 1940, who say, if you spoke of a Palestinian, you were probably referring to a Jew, not an Arab. Why? Because that was the term that was used. The Arabs didn't see themselves as Palestinians particularly. So if you read the Palestine Post in, 19, in the 1930s, it was a Jewish newspaper. The Palestine Symphony Orchestra, it was a Jewish symphony orchestra. When the Jews declared sovereignty and independence, they didn't use the name Palestine. Why? Because that's the name that the Romans gave to Judea when they took when they expelled or and killed and enslaved Jews for rebelling against the empire now if you go into a even a PLO office you'll see a portrait of Yasser Arafat right but but where are the portraits of all the earlier Palestinian leaders you don't see any why not under the Ottoman Empire there couldn't be a leader of the Palestinian nation it couldn't happen and there wasn't now what you did have in the 1930s was Haj Amin al-Husseini. He was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, religious leader, but as much a leader of Palestinian Arabs as you could have. He was actually named Grand Mufti by the British. He spent World War II in Berlin assisting Hitler, doing two things in particular, broadcasting Nazi propaganda in Arabic to the Middle East and recruiting Muslims from places like uh, Yugoslavia, uh, Albania, to serve in the SS. Keep in mind that in 1947, when the UN recommended a partition of Palestine, then under the British, it didn't say, what did it say? It said there should be two states, an Arab state and a Jewish state. It didn't say Palestine because that would be confusing. What does that mean? Right. It kind of happened through the 67 war, 73 Yom Kippur war. And thank you for talking about that dirty deal the Grand Mufti had with Hitler. I think that history needs to be out there. And what percentage of the population do you think knows about that? Very low percentage. And I think the problem with history is people have to read it and listen to it. An interesting thing for you to do Next time there's a rally in Denver, I assume there are, uh, saying for Hamas, but saying for Palestinians, where they shout, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Ask them even what they know what river that that refers to. I I bet you they don't. And by the way, when they say that, they're calling for genocide because Palestine from the river to the sea will be free of what? Free of Jews, because that's where Israel is between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That's what they're calling for. They're calling for the extermination of the Jews. That phrase, we have to understand, is a genocidal phrase. And, they, and the idea they want Palestine to be free is interesting because you have two you have Gaza, which has not been occupied by Israelis, has no is no Jews, no Israelis there since nineteen since two thousand and seven. Um, but it's not free. No one could say it's free. You have the West Bank, which is another name for Judea and Samaria. The Jordanians, after establishing control there through military force, renamed it. It's not free. The West Bank, the uh, Mahmoud Abbas doesn't tolerate freedom, and yet they say it will be free. What they mean is Jew free. The German word, the Nazi word, was Judenfrei right? Free of Jews. They would go into Czechoslovakia or they would go into Ukraine and say, we're going to make this territory Judenfrei. We're going to make it free. We're going to make it free of Jews. We're going to exterminate them. 
All right, before we get to right now, one more visit down memory lane, because I did an afternoon drive show, and Jimmy Carter was selling a book about apartheid in Israel. You probably remember his tour. And I got to interview him from a remote. And I had heard that day Ismail Haniya say, we're going to take Jerusalem. We're going to get rid of the Zionist usurpers. And Carter was palling around with this guy who's still a big Hamas leader. And I called him out. I said, why would you support a guy like that? He just said that no Jews allowed. And he accused me of misrepresenting things. And some Carter Center employees heard that and they put it in a list of grievances. You remember when 14 of Mm -hmm. them resigned? And they they cited a Denver talk show host who asked you questions about Ismail Hania. Tell everybody about that bad guy. And God bless Jimmy Carter, but that was horrible what he did there, wasn't it? Very horrible. Now, this this is a, a, a libel, a, a blood libel, a slander on Israel. And it's very clever because you say Israel is apartheid, and then the Israelis and their supporters have to say, well, no, actually, it's not, and here's why. And it's a ridiculous, it's, it could not be more ridiculous than anybody would know that if they even spent a day in Israel. And let me tell you why. Right, 20% of Israel's population is Arab Muslim, about 20%. That's a very large population. They are the freest Arab population and the freest Muslim population anywhere in the Middle East, including all the 20 countries or so that consider themselves Arab countries and and more than 50 countries that consider themselves Muslim countries. Uh, the, The Israeli citizens who are Arabs who are Muslims, have much more freedom. They can vote. They can run for office. They can be elected to the Knesset. They can serve on the Supreme Court. Actually, they're also among the most among the most accomplished Arab Muslim communities anywhere in the Middle East. If you go to Israel, you'll find that there are doctors and nurses and pharmacists and hospitals. Uh, they they go to Israeli universities. They don't, they're not segregated there. So this is really nonsense. Now, how can they make this claim that there's apartheid? The only way they can do it is to say, well... If you live in Gaza, you can't vote for the Knesset. Well, no, because you live under Hamas. And, right. <laughs> and, yeah. and if you live in the West Bank, you can, no, you, you're governed by the well, House. We gave the you that land. We gave you greenhouses. You, you're you, not an Israeli. You, you, you destroyed them. You wanted nothing Jewish. And so you destroyed the nice things that were left behind. So what about America? What about college campuses? I have to tell you when... I made the decision to go all in against a professor at CU Ethnic Studies Department named Ward Churchill. I went to his office and I saw on his door a big poster. I bet you'd recognize it with a German Nazi pointing a long gun at a surrendering little Jewish kid with a hat on. I bet you would remember the picture about five or six years old. I remember. But stamped on it was support Palestinian rights or some bullshit Mm. making the Israelis Nazis. And I said, whoa, you fraudulent, fake Native American, I'm going to expose you. And we did. The Rocky Mountain News, John Temple, you know this story. But now I feel like he's winning. There was another bullshit statement by CU's Ethnic Studies Department, kind of glorifying Hamas, these bloodthirsty butchers. Anyway, I'm getting worked up. Does it work you up what's going on at Harvard and other college campuses? Well, it's all over on these college campuses. It's a, it's a, it's a, and it has been for years. It's woven in with the whole DEI movement and their commissars on the campus. It's woven in with the whole illiberal left that have taken over since probably going back to the 1960s. Um, it goes back to the 1975, the, I, the idea that Zionism is racism. What is Zionism? Before 1948, it was the idea that the Jews should have a state of their own on part of their ancient homeland. The Jews, the Israelis, are one of the few peoples in the world who are living on the same land, speaking the same language, practicing the same religion as did their ancestors 3,000 years ago. They're indigenous people. They're as indigenous to the, to, the, to the Middle East, to Judea, to the West Bank, to Jerusalem, certainly, as American Indians are to any place in, a, in America. Who, they, were, they were there centuries, centuries, before the invasion of Muslim armies springing out of Arabia 
or other armies that came again this land the, the holy land what we call the holy was under foreign empires and the only act of decolonization was the establishment of the state of israel where they said where the israelis said we're the indigenous people and we're going to we're not going to have a we're going to get rid of colonialism get rid of imperialism and we're going to establish our own state in part of this land that's what this is and, that, and, and any american indian should send some do should see that this idea that it's a colonial outpost a colonial outpost of what country by the way i mentioned that 20 percent of israelis are muslim and arab more than 50 percent descend from families that have never never sojourned in europe they came from iraq thrown out they came from cairo and alexandria thrown out they came from from tripoli thrown out they came from morocco forced out they came from yemen terribly oppressed and eventually forced out so you get 70 percent have never of these people have never been out of the middle east and they took refuge in this one small land in part of the ancient jewish homeland but yes our universities we now see again even ask these university kids who are theoretically students theoretically scholars when they say the river to the sea, what river do they mean? And do they understand that they're calling for the extermination of Jews, just like the Nazis did? Is that their intention? It may be. I brought up the Rocky Mountain News. I remember how great a journalist <laughs> you were. And uh, I bet you were alarmed to see the headline in the Wall Street Journal, House Editorial, what was it? World War Against the Jews? I mean, even in the run-up to World War II. I, I don't know if there's ever been an editorial like that, but hey, we're facing up to it. And I think when you say it's a war on the Jews, it means it's a war on democracy. It's a war on the United States when you come down to it. I hope, don't you think? I, I think it is that too. I, my, you know, it, it, Totally by coincidence. I have a column, again, it's the front page of the commentary of the Washington Times, and the headline is, The Second War Against the Jews, Iran's Rulers Are Globalizing It. You can feel free to put it up. We have a website. Uh, I'll send you a copy Please. if you haven't seen it. And part of what I, I the kicker of the column is to, is to talk about death to America being the slogan recited repeatedly every friday night in tehran for now 44 years since i was there but what they understand the jihadists and they call themselves that in iran is that constantinople was not destroyed in the day it took many battles now again if you're a scholar on campus do you know what i mean by that probably not but constantinople was the christian capital for many many centuries until eventually it was taken over by muslim armies and guess what it became today? Istanbul. Again, I'd like to give a I'd like to give a pop quiz to some of these Saint kids and see you and see if they know any of this. Is, What's is, that? Wasn't the church turned into a mosque? Yes. Uh, churches have been turned into, into no, mosques. But in, that in, in, in Turkey, yeah. anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, of, yeah. The, the one yes. you're thinking about for a very long time was made was was kind of made to a neutral site in a museum. I visited it, but I think it's now been turned back into a mosque because they had, look there was a after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey became a republic, very Western looking under Kemal Ataturk. He was a leader of it. There are statues to him all over. But the current president for life of Turkey, Erd President Erdogan, he's an anti Kemalist. He is a he is a Muslim Brotherhood guy. He is an Islamist. And um, the Israelis keep, you know, keep trying to get reasonable relations with him, um, but that, that, that it doesn't look like it. He is supporting Hamas 100% right now. Now, this is where your organization, FDD, is invaluable because you have guys assigned to Turkey, Iran, uh, all these hotspots. Uh, you've talked about Turkey, but your work on identifying the Islamic Republic of Iran. It flows through Cliff May, but you have some other great people. Give them a shout out so people can follow them too. Look, I would, I, the best thing I've done is to hire people smarter and more knowledgeable than I am and surround myself with them, and that's who is working here. And you'll see these people if you just go on the, our website, fdd.org. There we're producing, particularly since this war began, huge amounts of material on this war, on Iran, on Turkey, on Qatar, 
And again, we do. Uh, we we we're also working on 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 Russia and Ukraine and China and 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 other parts of this axis of tyrannies, as I've called it, which threatens the Israel existentially, threatens the America, threatens all free societies. Am I wrong to advocate the assassination of Ismail Haniyeh at this point? Uh, you're not. Uh, he is responsible, uh, among others, uh, in Hamas for more than 1,400 dead, plus the rapes, plus the baby killing, plus the baby burning, plus all of that. He, every Hamas leader right now is a, is a murderer. There's a war on. The Israelis would be absolutely justified in saying this war doesn't end until either Hamas surrenders or Hamas is, is eliminated. And that means certainly eliminating the leadership, both in Gaza, they're working on that hard, but sooner or later, the Hamas leadership that lives in other countries, that would be particularly Qatar and Turkey. Back when we were spring chicken, I was a prosecutor. You were in the media. These are like street crimes, the worst. Home invasions, rapes, robberies, just despicable. But if it was organized the way it was here, we would have to say, how high does it go? And I think this is like mobsterism. And to me, the guy in charge is Putin, who controls Iran, or at least gives the nod. Do you think they would have gone ahead without his permission on his 71st birthday on October 7th? <laughs> I don't think Tehran, look, I think the relationship between the regime in Tehran and Vladimir Putin has been developing. I don't think they need his permission. I don't think he would object to it if they gave him advance notice that they plan to do this. They're, they're, Putin wants and needs the, uh, the, the, the drones that are being supplied and probably other missiles uh, from Tehran. And there are things that Tehran wants from Putin. And so this relationship is, 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 is growing. But I don't think they ask permission, uh, Hamas, except from the Islamic right, Republic but, of Iran. But, but now he's gone public praising Hamas, saying, hey, that was beautiful. We want to study your tactics, making them heroes. That's a dire turn, isn't it? It's uh, to, quite to be expected because, as you well know, Putin is, has been for two years now committing dreadful war crimes and atrocities uh, in Ukraine against Ukrainians. It is, you know, the, after World War II, the idea, as you know, under it, that was to, correct, to establish something we call international law. And if you can't eliminate war, you can at least civilize it a little bit, have some rules and restrictions. You don't use chemical weapons. You don't target civilians purposefully. Um, there are things you, you, you do and don't do. And, and, and Putin said, these rules don't apply to me. And Hamas says, these rules don't apply to me. And the Islamic Republic says, these rules, they're America's rules, but they don't apply to us. And so you see, and you see this in the media all the time, um, people, I saw this on CNN, they don't understand that Hamas has a strategy, not only of attacking civilians in Israel, but of using their own people as human shields. Because one of two things happens, either the Israelis don't attack the command and control because they don't want to kill non-combatants, or they say, we are going to go ahead and do it. And then they say, look what you've done. You've killed innocent people. How terrible of you. But And under international law, you're a lawyer, you know this, and under American law, the use of human shields is the war crime. That is the war crime. And a CNN reporter ought to know that's the war crime, rather than saying to the Israeli, but you, you, you went after this commander, and you, you knew you were going to kill innocent people? How could you do that? By the way, the Israelis have said from the beginning, are, we're going to focus mostly on northern Gaza. That's where, that's, where, that's where Hamas is mainly centered. We are giving you time. You need, if you, if you don't want to fight for Hamas, if you don't want to die for Hamas, then you have to evacuate and go south. You'll be safer there. If possible, go to Egypt. Egypt the Egyptians don't want to give them safe haven. Get out of the way of our. If you're there and you're acting as a human shield, we can't guarantee your safety. If you want to fight us, you can fight us. We're going to try to kill you, but get out of the way if you want to. So Israel is doing more than its part, but Hamas wants dead Palestinians for public relations and propaganda purposes. And nobody wants to talk about religion. You and I just did about the religious imperative, about the Hamas charter, but why doesn't anybody talk about it? Because maybe, you know, I went there after the conflict with the Gaza and the North, 
10 or 11 years ago. I broadcast from the Jerusalem Post building. I interviewed a general and I said, holy cow, you're not dealing with Yasser Arafat anymore. He was pretty much secular. You've got a religious party in Gaza, the party of God above you, the nuts in Iran. Why don't you identify it? And he said, because then it would be a holy war and those things last 100 years and everybody gets killed. So we can't talk about it. Is that right? I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to cause something like that to happen. But don't we have to tell the truth about what's going on here? If we don't face reality, confront reality, understand reality, we can't come up with policies to cope with reality. And FDD came in, in some way came out of exactly that conversation, because what I originally did at the behest of uh, Gene Kirkpatrick who is, uh, you may recall, was a, yes. uh, a U.S. ambassador to the U.N., the first woman to hold that position. Under she Ronald Reagan, right? Under Ronald Reagan. She is a Democrat, but she worked Ronald Reagan. And uh, Jack Kemp was somebody I knew also. These knew both of them from my journalistic career. Jack Kemp was, was a pro- prominent politician. What they said to me before, nine, well, particularly, what they, what they asked me is, do we look? They said this is about a week before 9/11. We have we 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 got hit hard by terrorists in Lebanon in '83. We got hit at the World Trade Center in '93. We got hit by uh, Cobra Towers in Saudi Arabia in 1996. Two of our embassies got blown up in two in uh, 1998. The U.S.'s coal got attacked in 2000. Is anybody connecting the dots? Does anybody know what this is all about? Who our enemies are? Or are we taking a holiday from history and a premature peace dividend? And I did some research to see what was going on and what kind of research was being done on this. And kind of. And what I found was it was very little. And a, a lot of the reason why, as best I could tell, was exactly what you're talking about. People knew that there was a religious motivation behind a lot of this, and they didn't want to deal with it. So now the X factor is X, right? Twitter, social media. You are on Twitter, so am I, but I really don't like or trust Elon Musk. How about you? I, I can't really say. I think it's probably better that Elon Musk took it over from Jack Darcy. I think that was it was in a pretty bad situation then. He's very, listen, from what I can tell, Elon Musk is eccentric. Uh, but as you say, I'm on Twitter. I, can't, I don't do a lot of social media. Other people here at FDD do. I only, there's only so many hours in the day. Um, so I'm out there. I welcome people to follow what I'm, what I'm posting. All right. Give us the best advice as we close this out. What's the average person to do? Well, make your views known to the politicians who represent you and particularly in the house and the Senate, uh, support organizations like mine that are championing values and interests that you believe in. Um, and learn enough about this that you can talk to your neighbors and make a, a good argument for what you believe, so that you don't have to be shy and keep your mind, bite your tongue when they're saying terrible things like, you know, from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free. When they're, when they're, when they are, if, you're, if your neighbors are, and your friends are pro-genocide, try to talk them out of it. If you can't, consider if they're really your friends. Right. We're finding out who the righteous Gentiles are right now, don't you think? It's like Erdogan. You know, we always knew he was a Jew hater. It's kind of good that it's out in the public now. Well, it's very, it is certainly clarifying. There were a lot of people who could say before, look, you know, Hamas, um, they really, all they, they're, they're aggravated, they're frustrated that there isn't more progress towards a two-state solution. That was an ignorant thing to say a month ago, but now it's beyond, it's beyond the pale. If you want more of Cliff, and I do, he writes this down beautifully. He's an excellent uh, column writer for the Washington Times. Follow him on Twitter, Cliff May. Thank you for your time. You were great. Thanks, Craig. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go and visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? 
It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey, that's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody, for all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years, and I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. Craig. Troubadour. What's up? We are going to let everybody listen to how we formulate the idea for a song each week. Because I am recording now, and here are your instructions, birthday boy. I know you're consumed with your big birthday, but not yourself. The fact that your two daughters, Sarah and Rachel, are blessing you with their company. So I need a song highlighting those two. So what if I just, like, write you a song um, right now? No, you've had so many beautiful songs. I don't want to bother you. I have a full show. If you want to write one right now. I like... was inspired this morning by the sunrise. Did you see the sunrise? No. Oh, man. Slept, slept through it. It was beautiful. And Rachel was out on the deck watching it, too. She was up early. I so saw Rachel. She runs An amazing run. start of the day. She said she saw you, yes. Craig. Okay, what's the best song with them singing with you? Oh, man. Well, they sang on so many good ones. What's your favorite as you reach this milestone birthday? Because I know you are, you know, I was just thinking about Jewish people. And if I had to make a case in court or on a podcast, I'd say, exhibit one, Dave Gunders, or maybe your dad. But let's let's (laughs) stick with you. I'd say he's a mensch. Look what he's oh, done. So nice. Look at the way he's lived nice. his life. Yes, he's made music. That makes you happy, God. So what song do you have for us this week? Well, I think, um, you know, it, and it's getting on that time of year. I mean, when the girls were younger, we did some songs that um, I think, you know, uh, that are kind of special to them and me. One is When the Lion Lays Down with the Lamb. Perfect. They were little. And their voices are beautiful, young girl voices. Um, But I think that you might like that, Craig. No, I do. And with all that's going on in the Middle East, and I'm not even going to talk about that with you because it's your birthday. You have your family. Oh, that's okay. I mean, we can talk about it. It's almost almost strange not to. You have to talk about it. I had the greatest interview with Clifford May on this episode 180. And Mazel Tov, my friend, you've been on every one of the Saturday shows. 180, Craig. That's a special number, too. Tell everybody why. Well, 18 is the symbol for, for life. Chai. Is, yeah. Eight, the number 18 is represented by Chai, a letter, right? The Hebrew letter Chai, and it, which also symbolizes life. L'chaim. Yeah. Yes. I wonder yes. if the Jew haters ever got total control. Would they have to scrub the language? You know, you can't say L'chaim. You can't eat a bagel anymore. They'll have to rename shit like that. I mean, it's just ridiculous what people in Europe and and, and your dad, your dad, he's alive. Let's talk about him because I make you exhibit one because you're the best son in the world. You know why? Because you love and respect your father. And people can hear why. I'll put that episode in the show notes. And and our most popular thing on our YouTube channel is Henry playing the harp, his harmonica. Oh, is that the most popular? Oh, yeah. Yes. He really 
my dad can play harp. Just like his he's, son. He's a natural. He is. Just yeah. like his son. So thank you for doing that. No, as an exhibit, you're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to say, here's Dave Gunders. You'll perform. What a performer you are. Tell us just a little bit more about when the lion lays down with the lamb. That's biblical, right? It is biblical. And it's also during the time of Hanukkah and Christmas. Um, it has, you know, the idea that uh, this is these are the uh, the darkest times this the nights are the longest and dark and and um and so we're we're through our singing and everything like that we bring light to the world i mean it has it and that's you know and it moves on from there that there's hope in the world when the lion lays down with the lamb you know um it was it was a song i wrote actually i remember writing it in my office during a huge blizzard and the 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 you know how when there's like over two feet of snow nobody moves and it felt like the world was asleep i I wrote that song wow what a great description i can't top that ladies and gentlemen from our troubadour dave gunders any medium apple amazon youtube just put in dave gunders music hell you have your own website it's what dave gundersmusic.com just davegunders.com davegunders.com how easy is that this song is beautiful almost every one of your songs are but this one is really special for your girls Sarah and Rachel and for you exhibit one our mensch Dave Gunders with a big birthday happy birthday and you know I don't make a big deal out of birthdays but I'm still gonna say happy birthday thank you Craig I appreciate it and I want uh I want to see you. Sarah's coming in tonight, and hopefully um, well, we're going to make it happen that you see both both my girls and my new son-in-law. We want to, we want to see you. We will make that happen. Thank you, okay. Troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Okay, tomorrow. tomorrow. Shabbat Shalom on Shabbat. That would be beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. Bye. Bye.
future depends on what we decide. It may be our nature. It may be our pride. If they stand in the is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Thank you, Troubadour. Happy birthday. I can't wait till I visit with your daughters and your beautiful family. Cliff May, thanks for renewing our acquaintance and a great interview. You are so smart. You've been studying this and you see it from all perspectives. Just fantastic. Thank you, sir. Maybe I'll get Keith Oberman on someday. I aim for big guests. I aim to entertain and educate. Tell a friend, please subscribe. Five stars on Apple and Spotify and YouTube, even though we don't put up our show with video. 
because God knows how I'm dressed right now. But here we are, and it's another week, and I wish you good fortune, and I wish the world good fortune. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.